You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. One side attacks the other, you have to respond, you have to counter with a worse attack. It happens to be correct tactically in a campaign. I think it stops when the American people demand that it stops. The soon-to-be former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Governor Andrew Cuomo, or perhaps... More accurately, soon-to-be former Governor Andrew Cuomo certainly had a rough few weeks. He announced last week that he'll be resigning from office after a scathing report accusing him of sexual misconduct, an accusation he denies. But it's been a tough fall from grace for the governor whose performance during the pandemic last year actually won him an Emmy Award. And now the political future looks very murky for the man once considered perhaps the future of the Democratic Party. I met Andrew Cuomo in 2003. Now, he was out promoting a book that he was the editor of. It was an anthology of essays written by Democrats and Republicans alike, debating the state and the future of American politics. And listening to it now, 18 years later, it's still kind of fascinating how timely those topics are. So here now from 2003, Andrew Cuomo. I had uh, run for governor in the state of New York last year. I withdrew from the race uh, before its conclusion. Um, And one of the things I learned during the campaign, Bill, was that uh, the people in New York, much like the people across the country, are turned off with the whole political process. They're not participating. They're not voting. They're not excited. Uh, The process isn't working. The political process isn't working by and large. And that's Democrats, Republicans, independents. And I wanted to take a step back and say, how do we make the system work better? It was a time of personal reflection for me. But also I wanted to say, look, something's not working and let's talk about the system without getting into these political debates, without getting personal. Let's talk about the real issues facing America and what the Democrats think and what the Republicans think. And let's get the best thinkers in one place to really speak about the important issues. And that's what the book is about. I was very pleased to see that there was nobody in here calling somebody a traitor or nobody saying you're a big fat idiot or the lies you're being told. This is a very civilized discussion you're having in here. It's a civilized dialogue. And so much of the politics nowadays and campaigns seems to get personal. It seems to get mean. It seems to get nasty. And it turns people off. Uh, politics was supposed to be about Americans and about their problems and about their lives not the lives of the candidates, and not the lives of the candidates, frankly, on a detail that they often would rather not know about uh, because it's irrelevant. And that's turning people off, so they're not paying attention. This tries to say we need to have the dialogue because it is a very, very important time in this country's future. Uh, For this country's future, let's have the dialogue in a sane way. Uh, It's called crossroads because the country is at a crossroads, in my opinion. When things are going well, the political dialogue is way down, which probably uh, it should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the economy is strong, if the nation is at peace, why do we have to deal with these politicians anyway? Let me lead my own life. But that's not where we are today. We have very real economic problems, very real domestic problems, and internationally we are in a precarious position, whatever your point of view. 
we need government. We need the dialogue. We need the debate. We need to talk these issues through in a civilized format. Um, and what we decide today may very well decide the future of the country. And just because this is a very civilized discussion does not mean that it isn't kind of prickly sometimes. And there are some, some points to be made that on both sides, on both the Republican and Democratic side, that are going to sting a bit. Look, prickly is okay. This is mm-hmm. a serious topic. Um, these are big decisions, weighty decisions, and a strong debate is fine. You know, the founding fathers going back to day one, these were very tough discussions that they had. Um, but they have to be substantive. And they shouldn't devolve into a personal tit-for-tat or a personal name-calling where you actually lose the substance of the debate. And in my opinion, that's what's happened in so many campaigns. You're not having a substantive dialogue. You're having a a personally uh, derogatory uh, shouting match. And uh, that does everyone a disservice. Yet history has shown throughout our presidential campaigns, even go back to the 18th, 19th century, that there were some personal attacks. That's really nothing new. But I think judging by the essayists in your book, many people seem to think it has reached an art form where personal survival and therefore the need to personally attack has transcended what's good for the country. I think that's right. And, and your point is very well taken on the history of the country. We tend to think, well, the founding fathers, they were real statesmen. They wouldn't have... No, they, 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 they got down and dirty. <laughs> oh, you look well at the Andrew stuff. Jackson campaign. That was nasty. <laughs> Andrew Jackson, you had some great long-standing feuds. You had Jefferson and Madison, and, and there were all sorts of accusations about mm-hmm. leaking of mistresses and, mm-hmm. and sexual infidelities. But maybe the, the difference was in those days, ultimately, the good of the country is what won out. And I think voters today think that it's not winning out. Yes, it, I think that's right. It's the good of the country ultimately won out. And the personal did not eclipse the substantive debate. Now it seems that the personal eclipses the substantive debate. You just had an election in California. Arnold Schwarzenegger's personal uh, history and sexual history uh, may or may not be relevant. But to eclipse the entire dialogue... Um, with the stories of of, uh, Arnold's personal life, does the voters a disservice. California's got very real issues. Mm -hmm. And that should have been the discussion. What are we going to do about the budget? What are we going to do about energy? Uh, What are their positions uh, on international issues? Because I think that's relevant for a governor of California. None of that happened. And when the personal eclipses the real issues facing Americans, then the system is broken. But I think I, I get the sense from, again, from many of your essayists that they fear that voters think we've reached a point where neither side feels it can back down and, and back away from those personal attacks because to do so will appear weak or will appear somehow or, or, or might leave an opening for, for someone else to win. I mean, are we, are we at a point where, where it's going to take some great act of statesmanship on part of both parties? Well, it's interesting. It is a vicious cycle. And when you are in a heated contest, one thing the advisors will tell you, because I've been there, is you can't allow an attack to go unanswered. Mm -hmm. So you wind up in this vicious cycle, a spiral, a downward spiral. One side attacks the other. You have to respond. You have to counter with a worse attack. Um, And it happens to be correct tactically in a campaign. I think it stops when the American people demand that it stops. I think you'll get to a point where the American people will punish candidates and campaigns that do that. And ultimately, uh, politicians are responsive to the voters 
or they're short-term politicians. You know, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's an ultimate reality in the system. And when the American people have said enough is enough, uh, which they may have said in California, by the way, then the politicians will stop, but not until then. Well, you've got a great essay in here by, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Professor Brinkley, on Mary Landrieu's victory and how she did, in fact, respond to the personal attacks, but also kept her campaign substantive and won. Yes, Mary Landrieu was one of the rare exceptions for Democrats in the last cycle where she actually won when so many Democrats lost. And what Professor Brinkley is saying is two things. One, she responded to the personal, but she didn't make it about the personal. And number two, she spoke to the issues that were relevant to her voters, to her constituents. They happened to be uh, along the theory of all politics is local and uh, trade issues and business issues and issues particular to the uh, sugar plantations there. But it was about her campaign was about the issues that affected the voters as opposed to personal diatribe. And she won. After this short break, Andrew Cuomo's take on why some politicians just don't get it. back to my 2003 conversation with Andrew Cuomo. So many of the essays in here, again, coming back to the idea that the people that are, who are writing it, who, who, by the way, I must say, you have, you have repre- a, a very diverse cross-section of people, entertainers and politicians and commentators and pundits and, and consultants and so forth, from across the political spectrum as well as, as the uh, gender and racial spectrum. But they all seem to, in one way or another, say that our politicians are hopelessly out of touch. And not just out of touch with, with being, being the personal versus the substantive. Out of touch with how much groceries cost and how much it costs to put your kids through college. And what really matters to the 240 million of us or 60 million of us who are actually in a position to elect them. Yeah, that is exactly right. It's, it's interesting. In the book, I tried to get the full spectrum. I happen to be a Democrat, and I'm proud of it. Uh, But I also understand, and I speak quite frankly in the book, of the shortcomings of the Democratic Party over the past few years and the mistakes that we've made. And I try to offer some suggestions about how we can regain uh, the bully pulpit of the Democratic Party, if only as the loyal opposition at this time in history. But we have Republicans, we have academics, we have entertainers, uh, because one of the opening premises was the politicians don't have the answers. If the politicians had all the answers, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Uh, so sort of by definition, we have to get outside of the traditional box. And that's why we had the broad spectrum we did. But you're right. The common theme keeps coming back to the current system isn't working. There really is no bold vision. Uh, the confidence in the system is way down. And uh, almost everyone in the book winds up with that point. One of the other issues we focus on in the book, which is troubling to me long term, is the quote-unquote young people in our society are becoming more and more disenfranchised. John Kennedy and that whole generation, they brought in young people. Young people were traditionally the energy of politics. They were idealistic and they were going to change the world and the political system was the way to do it. We're now losing the young people at an alarming rate. 1980 turnout among young people is about 40 percent. Today, it's about 26 percent. And it's only getting worse. Uh, And they are turned off. I've I've spent a lot of time on college campuses. It's not Democrats or Republicans. They think both Mm -hmm. parties have have lost sight of the common good. They can't distinguish between the two parties anymore. They can't. They really can't. And we have some young people in the book uh, who wrote essays talking about how to get young people back. 
And that is something we must address sooner rather than later. And there again, it's a vicious cycle. The politicians will say they don't reach out to the young people because the young people don't vote. The young people will say we don't vote because nobody talks to us. <laughs> so uh, it has to stop somewhere. And it comes back to the idea of knowing what is important in the daily lives. I mean, I'm sure there are young people who are, are terribly concerned about our trade imbalance or something like that. But really what concerns them more is are they going to have a job by the time they're 30 or 35? Will they have a retirement plan You know, 30 years beyond that? How much is their car going to cost? How much is gasoline to put in their car going to cost? Are their kids going to have enough clothes? Does anybody on either side of the aisle get it? Yeah. Well, you know, if they don't get it, they're not going to be there long. But I think uh, it's exactly right. People are living their lives. Be relevant to them in their lives. The politicians, the, the, the burden on the system is to be relevant to the citizen. The citizen is not supposed to be relevant to the politician. It's vice versa. Public service. The politicians are supposed to serve the public. What's important to them? What are they dealing with day to day? And speak to them and their issues in their lives. Is your book, you have several essays by presidential candidates. Is your book being shipped to every candidate? For the, is this, I mean, I, I, I can't help wondering, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just a, an old cynic, but is it too late for 2004? Or will, will candidates only get what you're saying by 2008? No, no, I think we, we, this next election cycle is going to be very important. And uh, it's, it's interesting the way it's shaping up. The Republican message was clearer than the Democratic message, um, both in terms of international and domestic policy. President Bush has an economic formula. It's called tax cuts. He's done three of them to the tune of about $2 trillion, and he believes that's going to get the economy going. He has an international policy, the war on terror, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Iraq, and he was very bold in what he did. That is their message. That's their case. The Democrats, frankly, have had a less clear case. Um, And in many ways, the next election is going to be a referendum, I think, on what the Republicans said they were going to do. Is the economy working or not? Is the policy that we took, uh, we followed with Iraq, is it working or not? And uh, the Democrats will be the critics, frankly, of the Republican policy. And uh, it'll be a referendum on whether or not the the Republican policies worked. I also believe the Democrats are going to have to offer an affirmative vision. It's not enough to criticize. Old expression, any jackass can knock down a barn. Uh, And in retrospect, everything seems so clear. You know, if we could only lead our own lives in retrospect, the Democrats are going to have to say what they're about and uh, what their vision is and what they need bold new ideas that speak to Americans where they live and the critique is not going to be enough. And I think if, you, if they did that, they would win back many people like Peggy Noonan who has a very thoughtful essay on here and why she became a Republican after having grown up a Democrat and why the Democratic Party today is not attractive to her. You have uh, What's frightening in the book is some of the staunchest Republicans were, were former Democrats. Mm-hmm. And that's something the Democratic Party is going to have to hear. What are we about? And why should someone be a Democrat? And the answer has to be more than, well, the Republicans were wrong. That's not enough of an answer. What the book is about is not, it's not about partisan politics. It's about politics in the best interest of the nation. And how do we get back to the essential principles that built the nation and have the dialogue once again? I believe in debate. And debate is good. And let's have a nice, strong debate. 
because we're talking about our children and their futures and the reputation of this nation around the world. But let's keep it on the issues. Let's keep it out of the gutter. Uh, and let's get more people in. And the more people in, the better the democracy works. Andrew Cuomo is 63 years old. He'll be leaving office next week. And you can find easy Amazon links to Andrew Cuomo's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, check out my interview with Bob Dole. People say, well, conservative, Republican, they're not funny. You know, like, well, I think Barry Goldwater helped to spell that, and certainly Ronald Reagan did. Goldwater was talking one time about, you know, Jews couldn't play at the golf course. Well, I'm half Jewish. Can I play nine holes? And my conversation with George McGovern. Liberalism, to me, means a faith that the federal government should take constructive, positive steps to advance the interests of the ordinary rank-and-file American. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, to mark National Radio Day, we'll feature my conversation with the man who's been a popular radio fixture for almost half a century, my 2003 interview with Garrison Keeler. In Minnesota, you're not quite allowed to enjoy your success. We are a culture of modest people, and, and we, we would actually prefer that you come in second or third. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.